So I invite you to turn there to Luke chapter 12. Before we begin, how many here, how many ladies were at the women's retreat? Great. Thank you so much for coming back and joining us for worship because I know you had a big weekend and uh, you're probably pretty tired, but thank you for your commitment. I heard that from my wife, I heard that the retreat was excellent and a great speaker, well-planned, and she had a great time. Bridge Kids, thank you for joining us. You're dismissed. So I want to start with some good news. Good news this morning. The good news is Jesus Christ is coming back. Jesus Christ Lord of Lord and King of Kings is going to return to this earth. He will come with glorious power and authority. He will come and he will judge the living and the dead. He's going to hold all people accountable for how they've lived. He will bring final judgment to this earth. He will, that means justice. And everything evil that you're concerned about is going to be taken care of. He will separate out those, those who follow, follow Christ and those who don't. He will separate out some for eternal life and some for eternal death. What Jesus also called hell. Will you be ready or not? Jesus said that no one would know the day. No one would know the time. Only the Father. Yet, you know, throughout the centuries, people have been tempted to prove Jesus wrong. And so, being smarter than Jesus, many people have uh, tried to make predictions about the day or the year or the decade. So far, no one has proven Jesus wrong. Literally, there are hundreds of of predictions documented about when Jesus would return. And yet, uh, here we are, we're still waiting. Let me just uh, share a few of those examples. Uh, So Hippolytus of Rome and two others predicted that Jesus would come back in 500 A.D. And one of those predictions was based on the size of Noah's Ark. People are creative when they make predictions. Pope Sylvester II predicted Jesus would return January 1st, 1000 A.D. Why 1K? You know, that millennium. I could see that's, that's an attractive idea, but he didn't come. Sandro Botticelli believed Jesus would return in 1504. His theory was... The tribulation, the seven-year time of judgment on earth, would begin in 1500. And three and a half years later, he expected Jesus to return. Johann Stoffler picked 1524 as the year of Christ's return. He chose his date because of the planetary alignment of Pisces. Michael Stifel. A mathematician calculated that Jesus would return in judgment on October 19th, 1533. Didn't work out. 
Henry Archer picked 1,700, counting 1,335 years uh, from the reign of Julian the Apostate. And he took 1,335 years from Daniel 12, 12, where 1,335 days is made reference to. Richard Brothers wasn't quite as precise. Richard was a sailor. He predicted uh, that Jesus would return 1793 to 1795. Sadly, Richard was committed to a mental institution. Joanna Southcott, a 64-year-old self-proclaimed prophet, picks December 25th, 1814. She said she was pregnant with the Christ child. On December 25th, 1814, she died, and they discovered she wasn't pregnant. William Miller picked October 22nd, 1844. His followers, the Millerites, called this day the, the day of great disappointment. Some of the Millerites went on to establish the Seventh-day Adventist church. Charles Taze Russell chose 1874 as the year of Christ's return. Russell was the first president of the Watchtower Society of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses as a group picked 1914 since 1874 was a no-go. Herbert W. Armstrong, who founded the Worldwide Church of God, also called the Radio Church of God, picked 1935, then 1943, then 1972, then he picked 1975. And by the time he died in 1986, the church began to uh, fold. One of my favorites is Edgar C. Wisenot who thought the year of Christ's return was 1988. I remember as a pastor uh, getting a free book in the mail. It was entitled um, 88 Reasons While the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. And uh, by the way, I didn't order that book. <laughs> but it was sent to the churches all over the country. Well, that one didn't work out. So, in 1989, he wrote his second book, and it was called 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1989. I don't think he's writing any more books. Now, there's just a ton of others. If you just go through history of the kinds of predictions that people have made, Jesus didn't tell us when he would return, but he did tell us a lot about when he comes back. And our passage this morning uh, is the first time that Luke mentions this possibility in the story of the life of Jesus. So we're going to be uh, Luke chapter uh, 12, and we're looking at verses uh, 35. We're going to begin with verses 35 through 40. like to read the passage as we start. Luke chapter 12, verse uh, 35. And here's what Jesus says. Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master re to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. 
It will be good for those servants who, whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not let his house be broken into. You might also, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. But go ahead and make your predictions if you choose. Okay, first thing, be ready. That's what Jesus wants us to know. That's what he wanted all of his followers to know is to be ready for this event. And verses uh, 35 through 38, he starts with the parable of the servants waiting for their master. What do you need to know about Jesus coming back? Well, you need to be ready. This is the call for us to be ready. He said, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. And um, he says, this is like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. So Jesus uses a metaphor to depict uh, readiness. It's like a first century situation. You know, he uses this story of the first century, something that was easy for them to understand, uh, something easy for them to picture. It's based around a wedding banquet. Wedding banquets were a really big deal. And this uh, master of this uh, place is uh, fairly well-to-do because he has many servants. And so this master, this man, has attended a wedding banquet that evening, and now he's returned. Banquets were in the evening, and so he's coming back. We don't know when. He's coming back later. It's going to be dark. And he, um, he expects his uh, servants to keep watch for him, to be dressed, you know, not all ready to go to bed and shutting down everything and no lights in the place. He wants everybody ready when he comes. You know, they just couldn't flip a switch on and off. They, for a huge place like this, they needed many different lamps. And, that, you know, they, had to be, they didn't have matches. This was a lot of effort. Probably had some people outside, some people around the compound, some people in the house, some people ready to open the door. Um, he expects his servants to be ready to respond when he gets there. So that when he comes back and knocks, they will immediately open the door to him. Responsible servants would wait up at night if needed. They're not going to close shop. When their boss returns, they're ready. And they welcome him back. This would have been a normal custom for responsible uh, servants and, 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 a, and a responsible master. Um, Peter wrote about the, the problem that people have waiting the problem that people have waiting for the return of Jesus. 
And that's one of the issues he's addressing for us. And it's really important for us because how long have we been waiting? Promises were made in the first century, and we're waiting. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, uh, Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You know, it's just easy to think, well, yeah, I know that promise, but it doesn't seem like making any difference. He's not coming. He didn't come. Why didn't he come? It seemed like he was going to come in the first century. People have always questioned his coming back. Sin grows more prevalent. Evil often prevails. Is he coming? And the answer is absolutely yes. Jesus Christ is coming again. You can go to the bank on it. You can count your life on it. And if you don't, you are going to be greatly, greatly surprised. God's promises never fail. In verses 37 and 38, he describes the reward. What does Jesus say about those who wait? Verse 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. It will be good. He's going to say, well done, you good and faithful servant. That's not in this parable. It's another parable. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself. Now, this is amazing here. Um, this is, this is out of the context for the first century. So he's surprising the audience here. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. The master is going to put on an apron. And he will have them recline at the table. He's going to have the servants sit down with him. And he's going to serve them. It will be good for those servants who master, whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night toward daybreak. Second or third watch. The watches were in, divided into three hours. Either um, 9 to 12 or 12 to 3. It doesn't make any difference. Be on the watch. These servants ha had to stay up. Now, Jesus isn't telling us to stay up every night. But this is the story of that event of that one day. About waiting for the, servant, the master to come that night. Again, Peter addresses those who wait for Jesus to fulfill his promise. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9. The Lord is not slow about keeping his promises as some understand slowness. It's been 2,000 years. God is not slow. He has a different clock and a different framework God is not slow. Instead, he is patient with you. He's patient with us. Right now, he is being patient. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's why he hasn't come yet. But he is coming. Um, I placed my faith in Christ in 1974. There was a big focus in Christianity at that time on future things and about end times. And man, that just grabbed me. And I just, that's, I wanted to learn and to understand. And 
I did, and it really helped me get the big picture of the Bible. And I was sure that Jesus was going to come before I finished my education. I just finished college. I was in grad school. I, got, I placed my faith in Christ, and then I applied for seminary and off to seminary, and I was afraid. Not, not a lot of fear, but I thought that there's a chance Jesus could come before I finish seminary and I won't even get to serve in the church. But he is being patient. You know, one of the things about being old that I got on some of you, I've seen God do some amazing things because we're waiting. Not only has my life radically changed, I've got to see next-door neighbors come to faith in Christ. I've got to see people that I work with at Firestone come to faith in Christ. I've got to see people in our neighborhood. Um, got to see lots of people in the church. Unsaved husbands come to faith in Christ. Um, God is just being patient. Who hasn't come to faith yet in your life? God is being patient. He uses you and me to reach out to those people in our world. Our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends that don't know Jesus yet. His plan is to use us. It's plan A. I think we have some more of the passage here. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's a, a common, you're going to see it in a minute in this passage, but it's going to be like a thief. The day will, the Lord will come like a thief. It'll be a total surprise. The heavens will disappear with a roar. This is uh, judgment. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. He's not saying perfect. Holy means to be set apart for God. And you can do that right where you're sitting. You just say, God, I understand that Jesus saved me from the penalty of my sin, and he wants me to be dedicated to serve him. Just set apart. It's God, I'm yours. I want to be available. Just use me. That's all it means. To be holy and godly as you look forward to the day. Look forward to the day. Focused on that day. And the speed of its timing. What kind of people ought we to be? Next, Jesus changes this metaphor in verses 39 through 40. And he comes now with that element of surprise, verse 39, the parable of the thief. He says, but understand this, verse 39, if the owner of the house had known, he's changing now, what hour the thief was coming. So he's not talking about the master and the servants. Now he's talking about the break-in of a thief. He would have not let his house be broken into. Now, by the way, Jesus is not a thief. What he's likening to is a surprise, the unexpectedness of the thief. And that's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. Nobody's going to know when. So what if I told you that your apartment or your house was going to be broken into at 2.37 a.m. tomorrow morning, and they're going to take everything valuable to you. What would you do? Some of you would sit in the dark, 
like Rambo and wait. <laughs> Some of you would turn every light in the house on and play loud music. Some of you would call the police and try to have a car sitting outside. But you would be ready if you believe me. You would be ready if you knew somebody was going to take everything valuable to you. And that's his point in verse 40. The call, be ready. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And now he explicitly states what this is all about. This is about his coming back. The Son of Man is the term that Jesus most often used of himself. Jesus will come as a surprise. No one will expect him. And he doesn't need any of his followers trying to predict when it's going to come. It's not going to help anybody to try, for, try to make it. It's going to make a whole lot of people look silly. And that's what's happened over and over, even by well-intending so-called godly leaders. And I didn't mean to intend that everybody on the list I read to you early were necessarily godly leaders, but there are some kind of crazy things that have happened through some well-intending members of the church. Jesus doesn't need anybody to predict when he comes. He needs his followers to be ready when he comes. Daniel the prophet pictures the son of man in Daniel chapter 7. That was the term Jesus just, just used of himself. Daniel writes, this is in the 6th century before the birth of Jesus. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. That's a name for God in the Old Testament. Everybody knew who he was referring to. So he's in, coming in the clouds, one like a son of man, and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Next slide. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Now, wait, who is that? All authority. Of course, Jesus said that in Matthew 28. All authority had been given to him. His dominion, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom was one that will never be destroyed. And there's only one kingdom like that, and that's Jesus' kingdom. And he's going to establish a kingdom on earth, and he's going to take us into an eternal kingdom forever. This is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Is he your Lord? This is the one who died on the cross and he paid the penalty for your sin. He was buried on the third day. He rose again and he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God where he is right now. If you and I could go there to the right hand of God, we would see him because he is there literally, all right? Acts chapter 1, verse 11 Luke, when he records the book of Acts, writes this event that happened after um, the resurrection, happened right at the time Jesus ascended into heaven. Men of Galilee, they said, they were the angels present at the time. Angels uh, appeared on many occasions around the life of Jesus, special messengers from God, supernatural. And... Um, 
God did those kinds of things to draw attention to his son. You know, they announce his resurrection. They announce his birth. It's really important. So here are angels. They said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. He's coming back. And he told the disciples right on the spot, this is coming to pass. The same Jesus is coming back. He will come back in the same way. Zechariah tells us that Messiah is coming back to this location right here, the Mount of Olives. He tells us this in the book of Zechariah. And when he comes at the second coming of Christ, when he comes to this earth, this, is going, this place is going to split open supernaturally. One of the interesting things that happened, I don't have the date on this one, it seems like it was in the 70s, that um, Holiday Inn wanted to build a hotel on this site. And they did their research and discovered there was a fissure underneath, that it wouldn't be safe to build a hotel on this site. And that place is just waiting for Jesus to return. And uh, 20 years ago, Sue and I got a stand on that site where Jesus ascended. I don't know exactly where it was. And I don't know when he's coming back. But I'm to be ready. Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. Later, Jesus uh, would say this. And he's talking about the second coming. And he says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is Daniel 7, by the way. Son of Man, clouds of heaven, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, with power and great glory. This is going to be an amazing, spectacular, supernatural event. It's going to be a light show like no one has ever seen. Next slide. And, they, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Jesus is going to bring out those who are Christ followers. He's going to separate them out, and he's going to take them to be with him and establish his kingdom. At the same time, there will, the others will be separated out, not for eternal life, but for eternal death. Question is, will you be ready or not? We come to 41 through 48, and here Jesus' instruction is to be faithful and wise. This is what he wants, for us to be faithful and wise. The final section begins with a question, verse 41. Peter asks, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Now, if you know Peter, Peter Sometimes got in trouble for what he said or for his timing. He just sometimes said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Sometimes he disappointed Jesus. But I'll tell you what, this is a good question. You know, put yourself there. You just heard him say this. But let me remind you, Jesus is outside teaching to a very large crowd. That included Lots of people just trying to figure out who Jesus is and what's going on. Yeah, some people were there for hoping to see some big miracles. 
But also the religious leaders are there, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they are critics of Jesus. And they've been looking for weaknesses and ways to, you know, belittle him if they can. Now, Jesus had just said he was turning, and uh, recently, last week, that he was been turning and talking to his own disciples. So a large crowd talking to his disciples. He tells this story, and Peter says, Jesus, who is this for? And so Jesus answers. And like Jesus often did, he answers the question with a question. So, verse, let's look at 40. Let's just read the passage, 42 through uh, 48. The Lord answered, Who then is the, is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper times? There's your question. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose the servant... And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he's not aware of it, and he will cut him into pieces and assign him into a place with the unbelievers... Verse 47, the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with a few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Okay. Verse 42, example number one, the faithful. And the Lord answered, so here's the question, who is, this, who is the faithful and wise manager? That's what we're looking for, the faithful and wise servant. Now this manager has put uh, someone in charge of all of his ser- servants. It's, he's, he's like a steward, a manager, a servant, who has demonstrated faithfulness and skill and ability. And so because of this, he's put him in charge of taking care of his servants, their needs, their food allowance, making sure that this is productive and healthy and orderly. And that's his task. Master's gone away. And... This faithful person, it, in verse 43, Jesus said, It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. That will be good. He's going to get a promotion. Huge promotion for being faithful and for being wise and being ready when the master returns. Um, Jesus wants his followers to know that he is going to reward them for their faithfulness. That he can count on them to do what he asks. Jesus wants his believers to understand that what they do makes a difference right now. Jesus said this to his 12 disciples in Matthew 19, verse 28. And... Um, This is just to his 12. 
Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when he comes in his kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, related back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, you who have followed me, followed those who did what Jesus asked, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a promotion, by the way. So these little lowly disciples who don't have much of an education, who just learned from Jesus about following Jesus, and and he's going to turn the entire operation over to them, and they're going to be the first leaders of the church. Those who are faithful, those who follow, Jesus told them, I'm going to put you... In this kingdom where he's king, he's going to put them in charge of judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All that history in the Old Testament, from the beginning through, from Genesis through Malachi, those God's people, the nation Israel, Jesus is going to put his 12 disciples in charge. Guess what? One of them doesn't follow through. One of them doesn't make it. One of them never gets this promotion, Judas Iscariot. And there had to be somebody to take his place. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says this to Timothy. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And what he's saying there is, If we are faithful and if we follow our master, there's going to be a promotion. And we're going to be given responsibility in his kingdom to reign with him. I don't know what that's going to be. I'm not planning on reigning over 12 tribes, or I'm just. I like, I find joy in serving and to think I'm not going to get tired in heaven. And it's going to be meaningful and significant and worthwhile. And it's, 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 there's going to be responsibility. If we disown him, he will disown us. Example number two, the unfaithful servant, verse 45. This is the second scenario with the same servant. The first one is about the one who is faithful and wise. This is the same servant. This is, what if this servant is not faithful and wise? Verse 45, but suppose the servant, the same one, says to himself, self, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat his other servants and men and women and to eat and drink and to get drunk. This servant knows the facts that the master said he was coming But he is lazy and sloppy, and he begins to mishandle his responsibility. He does not care for the other servants like he was instructed. He becomes a partier. He becomes violent, and he becomes abusive in his responsibilities. Verses 46 through 48, we see the punishment. The master, verse 46, of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. This is going to be a surprise. That's why he wants us to be ready. That's why he wants us to be faithful, because it's going to be a total surprise. 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him in a place with unbelievers. That sounds cruel, doesn't it? In the first century, Roman masters could do that with servants who abused their responsibilities. They could execute their own servants on the spot. So this wasn't out of the question for his audience to know that that could happen in some situations. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Jesus turns his metaphor from this servant over the household to the kingdom when he said he will assign him with the pla- in the place with the unbelievers. He is now not talking about that sto- story. Now he is jumping into the spiritual realm and the kingdom of God and he's talking about someone who will be cast into hell. As I would see this, this, is, this person was never a follower of Christ, even though he, he tried to pass himself off, attached to God's people. Remember the audience here. It includes the religious leaders of Israel who were responsible for God's people. They were given the Old Testament scriptures. They knew what their job was. They knew the word of God. They knew about the Messiah coming back. And they are not paying attention to what's happening right before them. When the master returns, he is not going to be happy with them. One of the dangers for us when we come to a passage like this where Jesus is telling a story We want to theologically try to figure out where everybody fits. Is this a believer? Is this not a believer? Is this a believer who's struggling? Is this a believer who's walking with God? Jesus didn't always give those options. What Jesus wants his people to be ready and to be faithful, not to figure out how bad a Christian can be and still be saved. That's not what this is about, and that's where our temptation goes. We want to slip people into the kingdom because we hope that that's true. Verse uh, 48, but the one who does not know and does not and does things deserving punishment will be, will be beaten with a few blows. Verse 47, the one who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. Verse 48, the one who knows, who does not know what the master expected and does things deserving punishment will receive a few blows. So there's a distinction between somebody who knows better and somebody who doesn't. But punishment comes to those who do evil improve their standing with God. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 15 reminds us, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, it was thrown into the lake of fire. This is final judgment. This is the end of all things. There's no other recourse after this. Um, This is eternal punishment. This is the worst possible scenario for anyone. Jesus called this hell. 
And you know what? We just take that for granted sometimes. We just think about, we want to be good Christians. We want to live the good Christian life. We want to be happy. We want to have nice things. We want to be good people. But there's a whole lot more than Jesus intended than that. To serve in his kingdom. He gives a warning in verse 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This is us. We have much more than anybody in the history of the world. We've been given much. We've been given wealth. We've been given the best health care in the world. We've been given freedom of speech and freedom of opportunity to share the gospel. And yes, sometimes we get a little mild persecution when somebody doesn't like us. We have freedom. We have access to God's word. We have free access to God's word. We have free access to study God's word, tools that are free. Never before has anybody had so much entrusted to them as us. And I confess that Jesus puts the greatest responsibility on his leaders. And I expect a stricter judgment before Jesus. He has given me much, and he's going to expect much. I've been entrusted with much, and I will be asked for more. The Apostle Paul reminds us, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus wants to be Lord, he's master. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He wants to be number one priority. He has no desire to be second. Zero. You then, the Apostle Paul writes, you who call yourselves Christ followers, then why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? Now, he lists two sins there, and... um, That's just two, and there's a whole lot more that God is concerned about than those two, but he's concerned about those. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And here's a reminder. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. Next slide. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. This is for Christ followers. This is for believers only. It is impossible for the out. If you're here, it's impossible for the outcome to end up in the lake of fire. It is impossible. This is only for Christ followers. And yet, we're still accountable. If you're in this line, I don't think there's going to be a line, but we picture it that way sometimes. If you're in this line at the judgment seat of Christ... You're going to go to heaven. But you're going to be marked for an eternity on how you lived. You're going to know. The answer isn't just to be in heaven. The answer is to be a Christ follower. 
to follow him, to be ready and to be faithful in all that he's given you to do. So, um, what about you? What do you need to do to be ready? What do you need to do to be faithful to Jesus? Are there any sin issues that you need to direct your attention to? Anything you're struggling with that you need to be serious about? Maybe you're getting sloppy. Are you, have you become sloppy in your spiritual life? That's really easy to do. Just nothing's pressing. You can still go through your day without consulting much with God or taking time to process or to listen to his word or bringing your prayer request to God? Do you have a damaged relationship with someone that you need to repair, to attend to, to reconcile with? Do you have a need to grow in generosity? You've been given much, but you haven't learned much about generosity. Do you need uh, Jesus to take charge of your speech? Because get pretty sloppy with how you say things to people. Do you need to be in a place where you can speak for Jesus comfortably? Can you share the good news? Can you share with somebody how they can put their faith in Christ? You need to learn how to do that, or do you just need to be walking with God because you already know, and you just need to be walking with God so you can take advantage of the opportunity and be empowered by His Spirit? Are there family members or co-workers or friends or neighbors that you need to be praying for? Because they don't know. They don't know about this day. They don't believe it. But you know it. Will you help them be ready? Has God laid somebody on your heart? Let's stand and close our time with prayer. Father, in the word of God, there is so much about your plans. You've given us the um, the whole story. You've, you've told us the origins, where we came from, how we got here. You've explained to us your intentions, how you've designed us in the image of God, and you've given us purpose for our lives. You've told us about the battle of good and evil, and you've told us who's going to win in the end. And from that, we get great confidence and great hope. And Lord, may we be reminded today in a serious way that Jesus is coming again, and it really makes a difference, and he cares about how we respond to him. And so, God, help us to be ready. Help us to be faithful to him. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.